Last week we began a series uh, in the book of Ephesians in which we will walk through the rest of the summer. And I pray that you uh, were encouraged by uh, the message uh, by our pastors on each of our campuses. Today we're going to be hopping in uh, to the latter part of chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you uh, to turn there now to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, maybe you're new to church. We just want to welcome you uh, to Stone Point. Uh, we're glad that you're with us today. And maybe you're here and you're like, I don't have a Bible. We'd love to bless you with one. Uh, or possibly you have a Bible, but you're not sure exactly where to turn. And so we want to encourage you to go to the New Testament. Uh, uh, your Bible's broken up into two major sections. One is the Old Testament. Uh, it's uh, 39 books that tell about the nation of Israel. Uh, the New Testament tells about the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus, who comes from the nation of Israel as uh, their Savior, their refuge. And ultimately, uh, as we dive into the book of Ephesians, we're going to discover that Jesus isn't just the Messiah for the nation of Israel, but he'll be the Messiah to all of humanity who would choose to follow him with their lives. And so uh, the New Testament speaks uh, about 27 books that show about this man named Jesus. It begins with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then from there, uh, it goes to various letters uh, and books that show about the early church and about how the church would thrive and flourish and even uh, have some of its challenges. One of the uh, books that is a letter from Paul, uh, which is called a Pauline epistle, or just a letter from a guy named Paul, is actually the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, uh, pastored by a guy named Timothy, uh, a buddy that was mentored by Paul, is a church that, uh, through the Scripture, did some incredible things. We're going to see a picture of some of the things that God was doing through them here in this chapter today, Uh, but this is a... uh, This is a a church in Ephesus that not only did incredible things, but ultimately you get to see the the birth of this uh, incredible church. You also get to see uh, how it moves and all throughout the scriptures. And eventually you even get to see a warning uh, to this church in Ephesus to be returning to its first love, that it had uh, waned over the years. And so uh, as we dive in, we're going to see kind of as Paul writes uh, to this body of believers and what he's encouraging them in. And uh, last week, uh, we began uh, just with the first 14 verses. I want to read them to you as we dive in, because I want you to see uh, one of the things that is so captivating to me as I've studied this book over the last couple of months myself. In verse 1, it just says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As we look at who Christ is, and ultimately what he has done uh, for the body of believers in Ephesus, uh, this this place where um, Greek mythology and and so many other things are going on in that culture, uh, he is just reminding them of the blessing of Christ and what it looks like to live in him, that every spiritual blessing is in Christ. And then he's going to begin just to kind of follow up that as we see the blessings of Christ and ultimately in Christ, that it is Christ indeed who is performing all the things in the believer and in the life of those who follow him. In verse 4, it says that he, meaning Christ, chose us in him even before the foundation of the world. 
that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He, Christ, predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, Christ is the one we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, in which he, Christ, lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, in which he, Christ, set forth in himself, Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were first to hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." The purpose of this is that ultimately salvation is a gift from God. It is a gift in which he gives to those who will follow him and will choose to, uh, according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, believe in their heart and confess with the mouth that Jesus is the Lord. And then what he does is, is he doesn't just call us according to his purpose, but he sets a plan in motion in which he not only redeems us, begins to move us forward, conform us to his pattern, to his wills, to his way. And the goal of all of that is so that we would understand the praise of his glory. And he does all of that as he seals us with the promised Holy Spirit. And so as we think about that, that kind of leads us into the following verses in which we want to just discover today. But before we do, let's just take just a few moments and let's just praise God and let's just thank him in prayer for what he's done for us, that he's lavished on us his love through his beloved son, Jesus, that he called us uh, to the mystery of his will, uh, that he revealed himself to us, that he gave us salvation, that he unites all things in him. I think it's worthy of just us spending a few moments of just prayer and thanking God for his provision in our lives. Heavenly Father, we love you. And Father, I thank you for the opportunity to present this message. Lord, I pray that your word would captivate and intrigue our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we would know how much you love us, that you sent your one and only son to give redemption to those who would believe in you through your blood, that you would forgive our trespasses, that you would display the glorious riches of your kingdom, that you would give your wisdom and your insight that you would make known the mystery on, the mystery of your will to us, and that this has been your plan from the beginning of time, that you were going to unite all things to you, things in heaven and on earth, that you were going to allow us to be a part of your glorious grace, the salvation in which you offer, and that you would seal us through your spirit. God, you are holy and worthy and perfect, and we praise you. Because we know that we don't acquire possession of your salvation in and of ourselves. It's not something we do. It's not something um, that we um, work towards. But ultimately it is you in which have worked towards us. That through your son being perfect and blameless and pure. You chose us. You loved us. And you offered us salvation. 
And so, Lord, I pray that we would know that that could be demonstrated in our life. And I pray just for those that are hearing this message. And I pray that we would respond according to your will and to your divine providence in our own lives. And that we would seek you and know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In verse 15, because of all the things that Christ has done, uh, 21 things purposed in Christ in the first 14 verses, it is for this reason, what Christ has accomplished, that he desires for us to move forward. In verse 15, it just says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith. Meaning, Paul has looked upon them and he goes, because I've seen the love in which you have for the Lord. Because I've seen you demonstrate your lives for God's glory. He goes, I've heard about these things. I've heard about your faith. I've heard about the way that you um, deal with other people. I've heard about your generosity. I've heard about all these things. But he goes, one thing that captivates my attention most, he says, it's of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints. Now, I mean, think about that. One of the ways the early church was made known most was the way they treated one another. Matter of fact, if you think about Acts chapter 2, uh, you see the basis of what community really looks like in the early church. Something that scares many of us to death because we would hate to really make ourselves available to other people. Uh, many of us, we struggle uh, to understand what really community looks like and being transparent and loving one another well. But apparently that was the mark of the church in Ephesus, that they loved one another. Matter of fact, I think that's really the mark of the believer. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he goes, if anyone says, I love God and, I hate, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so John, the apostle, uh, the beloved of Jesus, uh, says, look, you can't claim to love God and not love one another. Uh, also in John chapter 13, Jesus says it himself. He goes, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another. Just as I've loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So in the, the church in Ephesus, uh, in the midst of, uh, an economy uh, that was booming and, and ultimately uh, in the midst of uh, goddesses and uh, in sexuality, it was very confused. You've got this church and, and they have a love for Jesus and then their love for Jesus is being radically displayed in the way that they love other people. That their love towards the saints was something that was endearing. It was something that was apparently noticeable and it was something that was being talked about even to the point that Paul had heard their great faith, their faith in the Lord and the way they loved one another. So one of the challenges I think oftentimes in the church is that we claim to love God, but we struggle to like people. Um, I uh, went to a church uh, several years back with a guy uh, who he would oftentimes tell you that he didn't like people. And I remember having a conversation with him at one point saying, let me ask you a question, man. How is it that you continually withdraw from other people? And you would even say that you love God, but you don't like people. And what Jesus is saying and what the apostle John is saying, and even ultimately what the church of Ephesus is representing is that you cannot claim to love God and have faith faith in Jesus, and not love other people. It's not the mark of a New Testament believer to not love others. 
And so you cannot possess a hatred in your heart towards other people, a disdain for other people, and also claim to be right in your relationship with the Lord. What we see in Scripture is, is that that is not a great depiction of a New Testament believer. But in verse 16, uh, he says, Hey, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I remember you in my prayers. When we think about uh, what Paul is saying to the church of Ephesus, he goes, look, God has accomplished this great work in your life and in the lives of the church in Ephesus in which I give thanks to the Lord for your faith and the demonstration of your love so much that I continue to remember you with thanksgiving in my prayers. This is kind of the idea here that Paul is is saying in chapter one, is just saying, look, uh, I... I have seen you model your faith. I have heard of your testimony. I am praying for you as you demonstrate your love for one another. And I think one of the greatest ways that we love one another well in, in the church is to continually pray for one another. And I don't know about you, but I think oftentimes what happens in the, the church today is that we would say, oh, hey, I'll pray for you. And then in some ways it slips our mind. It doesn't necessarily grab our attention. And we just don't really do that well. And I'll tell you that one of the things that I think will set the church apart is what what. Paul begins to outline here, and that is that a church would be marked by their faith in, the, in Jesus, their love for one another, and then he gives us a model of what it looks like to be praying for one another. Matter of fact, I had somebody recently ask me, hey, Brandon, can I be praying for you? And I was studying the book of Ephesians um, and have been uh, because I wanted to kind of just go through it myself before I taught it. And one of the things that just intrigued me about these verses, and I just said, hey, if you don't mind, just pray this for me. And I gave him these following verses. I wanted him to be praying for me the very things that Paul was praying for this incredible church in Ephesus, a church that started out seeing radical life change, loving one another. And this is what he began to pray. In verse 17, he says, I'm going to be praying that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him. Ultimately, the goal of our Christian life is to center ourselves in the will of God. And oftentimes we uh, wonder what the will of God is. We oftentimes wonder what it is that God wants us to do and uh, and, and we think, well, maybe it's just this incredible sign. Maybe that if there's a lightning bolt or uh, maybe there's some incredible um, genie in a bottle that we rub and um, maybe that's what will happen. And that's not what this text is saying. Matter of fact, that's not at all what he's talking about. Uh, this isn't uh, us, in a sense, wanting some divine sign. What it is, is us to begin to lean into the spirit of wisdom in which has already revealed himself. Proverbs tells us that, uh, that we can know where wisdom is, that wisdom has always been and always will be, that even the very onset of the creation of the world, wisdom was there. And the reason why wisdom was there is because God is all-knowing. He is complete wisdom. And what's incredible is, is that God has already spoken in a way in which we can see and understand his wisdom, that we don't have to guess about it. We don't have to uh, wonder about it. We don't have to try to go through our life 
picking bits uh, and pieces from every conversation, looking at every sign and wondering, is that the Lord speaking to me? Because at the end of the day, God has already spoken in his word and he wants to impress his divine wisdom, which has always been and always will be to us. He wants to give you and I wisdom. According to James, the half-brother of Jesus, he goes, listen, God wants to give you wisdom. All you got to do is ask and he'll give it generously. And so our prayer should be that God would give us a spirit of wisdom. That if the spirit of God lives in us, that we should make decisions that are wise. And that, that wisdom is a result of knowing God. And so what are we asking for? We're saying, God, would you give me a spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of you? The more that we know God, the more that we abide with him daily, and the more that we center ourselves on him, the more that we make decisions that line up with the word of God. And ultimately, the more that we can center our lives with the will of God. Oftentimes we look at our lives and they're in confusion and chaos and we wonder, how did I get here? And the reason we got there is because so much of what we have done and have been accomplishing has been in the flesh rather than in the spirit. Right now, uh, our kids are doing kind of a throwback 80s theme uh, this summer, and they're going through the fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5. But what's interesting is that before you get the fruits of the Spirit, which are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, before you get to those, you get a, a, a whole gamut of things that ultimately reveal who we are without the Spirit and without the Spirit's leadership in our life. And those are things that are contrary to the nature, the will, and the ways of God, but they reveal who we are as natural man, as humanity in our flesh apart from God. And so as we seek to know God, we want to live with a spirit of wisdom and we want to draw near to the one who is wisdom and who has already revealed himself with wisdom through his word. And so I think one quick question that you should ask yourself if you're contemplating a decision in your life or ultimately uh, you're wrestling with where you are in life is just what does God's word say about what I'm dealing with? What does God's word say about anxiety? What does God's word say about depression? What does God's word say about my marriage? What does God's word say about my parenting? What does God's word say about my addictions, about my hurts, about my hangups? What does God's word say about forgiveness? What's it say about reconciliation? What's it say about loving my neighbor as myself? What does God's word say about my finances, about the way that I am a steward of my time and my resources? What's God's word? say about the church? Should I be a part of community? Should I not be a part of community? Should I jump into one of these groups or shouldn't? Should I use my gifts, my talents as a way to serve God through the local church? What is the local church? Do I really have to be a part of it? There are tons of things that if you were just to sit back and ask God, God, would you give me a spirit of wisdom? And would you give me a revelation of yourself on these particular issues that the text would begin to come alive to you? And as we begin to have a revelation of the knowledge of him, the God in which has saved us and desires to sanctify us, work us out, then we will have eyes that are enlightened. In verse 18, 
part of that prayer is not just that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him, not that he would just show us more of himself, but also that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Like, what does that even look like? What, what does that even mean? You mean my heart has eyes? And so this expression is one that Paul uses and he goes, listen, it's important that we're able to discern what God is doing. It's important that we realize that we're not just seeking after a genie in the bottle. It's important to realize that we're not just guessing as we go throughout life, but that actually God wants to reveal himself to us and if we'll open up the eyes of our heart. If we'll lean into him, then we can see clearly. And I think probably one of the greatest prayers that I have right now just for our body as we dive in this text over the next couple of months is that God would just open up our hearts to some of the things that, that don't line up with his word. That w- some of the things that we can't clearly see now that we will come to see. Matter of fact, Jesus addresses kind of the idea of what it looks like to have your eyes, uh, the eyes of your heart enlightened. He addresses this in Matthew chapter 13. He gives the parable of the sower and he's talking about seed and it landing on different types of soil. Uh, but as he gives that, the disciples are going to ask him a question. And the question revolves around why it is that Jesus would teach in parables. And I love Jesus' response. So in verse 10, the disciples come to him and go, hey, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And then he answered them, and this is what he says. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now I think that ultimately um, that's a very confusing statement. And the reason it's confusing is, is that what Jesus is saying, for some people they get God's wisdom and for other people they don't get God's wisdom, which takes you back to the earlier part of chapter 1. Some people understand and ultimately their eyes and their ears are open and others apparently aren't. In verse 12, it goes on and it says, For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because they, uh, but seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So what he goes, he goes, in many cases, he goes, I speak to, in parables because I want for some eyes to not be open. And, and there's going to be some that hear, but they don't understand it. They, they're not getting the point. And in verse 14, he goes on. He goes, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. that says, You indeed will hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but you'll never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have been closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, I would heal him. He goes, I want to heal them, but he goes, they do not want to see the things of God. They don't perceive the things of God. Their eyes are open, yet they don't see. Their ears are open, yet they do not hear. They do not perceive my truth. Their hearts are hardened. They will not turn to me. And then in verse 16, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Think about this church. Think about the implication of that. That if you and I have salvation from God, that at some point in our journey, he illuminated our eyes to see. That he took our dead heart and he made it alive. 
And then he's captivated our attention. He goes, now I want you to lean in and I want you to have the spirit of God, the understanding and the knowledge of my purpose. And I want your eyes to be enlightened. I want you to know and understand what I'm doing in the world around you. I don't want you to wonder about what your purpose is. You're a priesthood of believers. You have a duty. You have a message to share. You have work to accomplish. It's not about the things you oftentimes think it is. It's about more than that. It's about my kingdom. It's about my purpose in the world. And the Lord wants us to see that. The question is, is why don't more people see it? And at the end of the day, Is there a reason that some hearts aren't enlightened? Is there a reason that some ears don't hear and some eyes don't see? And Paul addresses this to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1-4. through He says, Therefore, having the ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Talking to the church of Corinth, he goes, Look, we we want to honor the Lord. We, We want to renounce things that don't honor Him. And then he says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So the idea that Paul is saying, he goes, look, we as believers, we want to live in a way that reveals the spirit of wisdom in our lives. We want to have eyes to see and ears to hear. We want to perceive the things that God is doing around us. But if there is a message that is veiled, if the gospel is veiled, then it's veiled to those who do not have eyes. It's veiled to those who are perishing. And in verse 4, he goes on and he says this, In their case, the God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel at the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul writes to the church of Ephesians in the first 14 verses, he wants us to see the glorious image of God. And then in the following verses, he's praying for the church of Ephesus. And here's his prayer, that they would have a spirit of understanding, that they would see and understand and discern the knowledge of God, and that their eyes would be enlightened. Enlightened to what? To the truth of the mystery of God's good news. The good news of the gospel, that it's spreading across the world, that you don't just have to be an Israelite to partake of the gospel. Now the gospel is being made known and manifested among all nations, that anyone who would believe upon Jesus to look to him could be saved. And ultimately, here's what he wanted them to also understand is that there is a real enemy. We'll get to that in chapter six, an adversary who really does want to steal, kill, and destroy people. He really does want to snatch you away from the purpose of God. And that's a real thing that we should all be praying for. God, wants so desperately for us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, to perceive his purposes, but yet we have an adversary who is roaming to and fro about looking for someone to destroy, just as God is looking for someone to lift up and honor. And my prayer is, is that we would know that and understand that and that we would discern those things because there is a real enemy and he lingers about. Matter of fact, what we know from 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, if you were to look just at verse 14 alone, it says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are followed to him and he does not able, he's not able to understand them because they are physically discerned. Meaning, if you're ever going to understand the purposes of God, you're not going to do it on your own. You're only going to do it because God enlightens you to the truth of his mystery. God is a, myst- a mystery indeed. 
God is difficult to figure out. Matter of fact, he cannot be known fully until one day he unveils himself fully. And I think we're going to spend an eternity trying to figure out all the character of God. But here's what I do know is he's revealed himself in a way right now that through his spirit, we can know and understand and discern the knowledge of God, the will of God, and the ways of God through our word, through the word in which he has made alive to us, that our eyes could be enlightened. And here's why our eyes are enlightened, the latter part of verse 18, so that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you that are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saint. I mean, too many eye, too many Christians have no eyes in their hearts. I mean, they, they're not gaining real knowledge or understanding of what God really wants. And my, my goal in this teaching today is that we would begin to pray earnestly and beg God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we would be looking for ways to join God in the work around us. And friends, listen, I think that God desires for this body of believers here at Stone Point to be making a radical impact in our culture, particularly in this county and the small towns that we're involved in. And I want you to see that he's, he's wanting to show the mark of us as believers in the way that we love one another, the way that we deal with one another, the way that we approach one another, that we would exemplify his grace, that we would live in his spirit, that we would grow in the knowledge of his truth, and that ultimately our eyes would see his goodness, his grace, and that at the same time, we would see the sin around us. And then instead of running from it, that we would run towards it with the glorious goodness of God and the purpose of his forgiveness to those around us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 22 kind of speaks to this as well. He just says that if anyone would cleanse himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vassal from honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So the goal is that God is calling us to something. What is it? To be set apart to be honorable for his use, and to flee youthful passions. And so it's exactly what our kids are learning right now in Stone Point Kids in this particular hour. And that is, is that do not live in the flesh, but ultimately trust in Jesus, be indwelled with his spirit, and live in the fruit of his grace. May we display one of the greatest characteristics of that, and that is love to one another. And then verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, to those who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who is in all and in all. The idea of this and the last handful of things, uh, verses there, as you look at, is just this, is that God has blessed us with the immeasurable power of God. That as we think about the spirit, it's the same spirit that crushed David's adversary and enemy uh, in Goliath. That just as Goliath was killed, so is our adversary. Satan himself has ultimately already been trampled under the feet of Jesus. 
that the very one who um, set Joseph free from the oppression of his family and took what meant ultimately in Genesis 50 for evil and turned to good. That's what God does through his spirit. That's what God wants to do in our life. Just as you have uh, Israel set free from the captivity of Egypt and they were set free from the bondage of slavery, God wants to take away the yoke of slavery in us and by his spirit, he wants to set the captives free. That's what God is doing through his spirit. Just as God would take an adulteress uh, and set her free in John chapter 4, God wants to set us and our adultery and our sin problem. He wants to set us all free. That's what he does through his spirit. Just as he would take the tax collector or the thief and he would set him free of his corruption, he wants to take us and set us free of our corruption. That's what the spirit does. Just as he would take the Pharisee and the religious one and set him free of all of his self-righteousness, God wants to take us free. Instead of us being people who look down on others because we think we're better, that we would look and view in the lens of a holy God and we would realize we don't measure up and that the Spirit would set us free. May God give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and may we come under the great authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the authority of the one whose name is above all names that he has more authority and more power and more dominion than any other name that will ever be named. And all things are under his feet. I don't know about you, but that takes all the pressure off. It takes all the pressure off of me having to somehow be cool or to give fancy illustrations or to take this word and to make more of it than I really have to. At the end of the day, this is his word. It is his power that he's orchestrating things and he can just take the pressure off because at the end of the day, all of this is up to God and we just give it to him. And the reason why we give it to him is because when it says that he's going to be named above all name, it doesn't mean that just Jesus is a powerful name, but it means that Jesus will be given the name, which is the name of God, Adoniah. He is going to be the one who is supreme over all things. And there are literally name after name after name that we think about. Um, when it comes to Jesus in terms of setting us free. I mean, think about this. Jesus, the one who has all authority, let's just end with this, thinking about who he is. He is our redeemer. Job chapter 19, he is our risen Lord, 1 Corinthians 15. He is our rock, 1 Corinthians 3. He is the sacrifice and the propitiation for our sins, 1 John. He is our Savior. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of the Most High. He is the creator of all things, Colossians 1. He is the resurrection and the life, John 11. He is the door. John 10, he is the way, John 14. He is faithful and true, Revelation 19. He is the good shepherd. He is the great high priest, Hebrews 4. He's the head of the church, Ephesians 1. He is our holy servant. He is the great I am. He is the Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. He is our indescribable gift. He is our righteous judge. He is the king of kings. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. He's the light of the world, John 8. He is the light of the tribe of the Judah. He is the one who is worthy to open up the, scripts, the scrolls uh, and the seven seals, Revelation 5. He is the Lord of all. He is our mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5. He is our Messiah, John 1. He is the mighty one. He is the one who sets the captives free. He is almighty. He is the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation 22. He is our advocate, John, 1 John 2. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our authority. He is the bread of life. He is the beloved son of God. He is the bridegroom 
of the church. He is the head over all things. He is the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118. I could go on and on and on because Jesus is worthy to be praised. And church, here's the message. He would take a fool like me, wretched, dark, a sinner, set in the purposes of my flesh, and he would make me alive by his spirit, that he would give me his word, a revelation of his truth, and he would set me free to know him, that my eyes of of my heart would be enlightened, that I would know with all wisdom the glorious purposes of his grace on which he lavished upon us, that he called us to, And church, I don't know about you, but I think in some ways we've lost the awe and the wonder of God. And I think Mark wrote a fantastic blog this week just talking about a bird and its ability to fly. But if you haven't read it, you should. And here's the purpose of it all. Listen, we're going to get to heaven one day and people are going to ask us about God and about living in his spirit. And we're going to be looking at Old Testament saints. We're going to be wanting to know what it was like for David to kill Goliath. We're going to be wanting to know what it looked like for Moses to part the Red Sea. And we're going to be wanting to know what it looked like to see a donkey talk. And we're going to be just looking at all these different things and they're going to be intrigued by what it looked like to have our eyes of our heart illuminated by God's Spirit. And many of us in this room are going to go, I don't know. I don't know what that really looks like. I mean, it was okay. I mean, I I went to church and, but can I just tell you, church, there is more for the believer when we live and walk according to His Word And we embrace the Spirit of God in our lives. And my prayer for us over the course of this next handful of weeks and throughout the course as we mature as believers is that we would not merely look upon this word and upon this opportunity to worship and then this opportunity to live our lives as some mundane task, but that we would see as a privilege to partner with the God of the Bible and sharing his gospel and the revelation of his will with all who would hear it, that their eyes might be opened to the truth of his mystery. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for us this morning. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes, give us wisdom to see you, to know and to make known the mystery of your gospel. I pray that you would help us to grow in a spirit of understanding of the knowledge and the discernment of your will. I pray that we wouldn't be looking for a burning bush, that we wouldn't be looking for um, some sign that you are with us, but that we would take hold of your word and which has already spoken on all of these things and that we would lean into those truths and that we would discover them afresh and anew that we would live by your spirit, that we would bask in the grace in which you've lavished upon us, and that you, God, would grow us by your authority and by your will in our lives. We love you. We thank you. And we pray that this message encourages our hearts and reminds us of your goodness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.